Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn in your Bibles this morning, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31. That's We're going to start there, but we're going to take a little detour today for a special reason. I think you'll understand before we finish. And I want us to begin a little series here. It's going to go through chapter 13 on the absolute proof of a surrendered life. The absolute proof of a surrendered life. I know you've heard the little phrase, it acts like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, it must be a duck. Now that's a good way of deciding what ducks are and what ducks are not. But the question we want to ask this morning is in the context of what we've been studying in 1 Corinthians. It's in the context of what is a surrendered Christian And what is a non-surrendered Christian like? Is there any proof in Scripture? Is there any mark upon a believer that would show him to be a spiritual man, that would show him to be a surrendered person? We see people in the pulpit. We hear them preach, and perhaps they preach eloquently, and we say, surely that person is so gifted, he must be spiritual. We hear people teach in a Sunday school class, and we say, That's the best lesson I've ever heard. That person is so gifted. That person's got to be spiritual. We know those that know the Bible from cover to cover, and we say, with that kind of grasp of the books of the Bible and knowledge of Scripture, that person must be spiritual. We see people do great things for others, and we say, that person must be spiritual. But if you take all the preaching and all the gifts of teaching and all the knowledge and all the works that a person can do, and you put them into one mix... There's one way to test them to see if they're truly those things that God is doing. If they really come from a surrendered life, there is one way to test them, and only one way to test them. For you see, all of this spiritual stuff can be nothing more than disguised religious flesh. How do we know the difference? How do we know that a person is truly surrendered to God. Well, it's what chapter 13 is going to tell us. It's a quality. It's called love. A little four-letter word. We don't like four-letter words. This is a four-letter word we better like. It's something that only God can produce. It cannot be faked. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, I think it reads this way. Now, I'm not going to fight with anybody over it because there are different interpretations of this verse. But when he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts... And I show you a still more excellent way. What is he saying here? Now, he's just chided them in chapter 12 for 
thinking that this gift is greater than this gift. He tries to show them that the gifts that we think are unnecessary are really the more necessary and, and the gifts that are more noticeable don't need any recognition. They have it already. And what he's, I think what he's trying to do is to show them that just be thankful you're part of the body of Christ. Stop thinking that what this person got is a gift and what you got is a gift is, is lesser or greater because all the gifts are just as, as, as great. When God puts us into his body, he gives as he wills. And then he comes to this point and he says, but you are earnestly or earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, what, what I shared with you the last time, I don't think that's a proper translation. Now, who, who, who is Wayne? I'm just Wayne. And uh, this is what I think. Because the indicative and the, and the imperative moods or forms rather are the, are the same. They're identical. It's translated in the imperative. But if you put it in the indicative, they would be saying, but you are earnestly desiring the greater gifts. And that was their problem. I think he's pointing to the problem of Corinth. What's wrong with you people? You're desiring what you have already deemed to be the greater gifts. This is your whole problem. You're seeking after gifts. And Paul says, I show you a still more excellent way. And then he comes in with chapter 13. And there's no mistake that chapter 13 is where it is. And to me what he's saying follows the pattern of everything he's done in chapter 12. What he's saying is stop desiring the gift. Stop desiring the gift. If I could say this to some believer out there who thinks they need to have this gift or the second blessing or whatever else, can I say to you stop desiring the gift and start desiring the giver. And when you start desiring the giver, when you, when you start looking for your joy only in him, not in a gift, your joy is not in a gift, your joy is in the giver. And you stop looking at this person as greater, this person as lesser, and you start realizing, hey, we're just saved by grace, and anything short of hell is grace. What a marvelous message of just salvation. And start seeking the giver, that then the fruit of that surrendered relationship is going to be the only way people are going to identify you as a spiritual believer, and it's going to be that fruit of love. It's going to be that quality that cannot be manipulated and cannot be duplicated by the flesh at all. Matter of fact, if it's not there, then whatever you think is spiritual is nothing more than a front to a person who's living as a fake. He's living a double life. He's really not surrendered to God. I want us to do something this morning that's a little unique and it's just as the Lord led me, and I'm just trying to follow His leadership. 1 Corinthians 13 is going to show us what love is. We're going to see it as clear as you've ever seen it in your life. And it's going to stand as stark contrast to the people of Corinth. But I want to do something a little different this morning. As I was studying this and praying about it, this, God took me to this, and, and I'm just happy you have to trust me. I just want to do this as a backdrop. I want to show you what love is not what God's love is not. I think sometimes that's a great way to understand even more what it is. When you look elsewhere in Scripture and find out what love is not, that becomes sort of a backdrop so that 1 Corinthians 13 can be elevated up and now you see what it is in the contrast to what it's not. I want us to understand that. And I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. A passage that I've used over and over again in 17 years that I've been here I'm going to use it over again this morning. You'll do it a little differently, but it's the same text. I find no better place in Scripture to find out what love is not than 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, but you've got to start back in chapter 1 and verse 22. You see the context of Peter, and, and, and I want you to keep Corinthians in your mind, but the context of, of, of writing 1 Peter 
is the worst persecution you'll ever find in the New Testament. If you want to find a, a true believer in the sense of being persecuted and having to bear up under the worst type of circumstances, you find that in 1 Peter. Nero has burned Rome, and it was a contrived plot to take the burning of Rome and blame the Christians for that burning. And so as that result, the, the persecution started in Rome, but it spread all out through Asia Minor, which was under the domination of Rome. And so Peter writes to the persecuted believers in Asia Minor and all the different areas of Asia Minor. And he has a word for them. And it's interesting to me, these are precious people, and they're, been they're being persecuted. They were, they were soaked in oil and put on poles and lit, and so they became the torches for the orgies that, that they would have in Rome and in different areas there. They would be put into animal skins and put out into an arena, and people would actually pay money to come and watch wild animals attack them and eat them. This is where some of the most beautiful stories and testimonies come out of when they'd walk out into that arena singing the great hymns of the faith. And it was just absolutely astound the crowds that these people could stand there and honor God at the face of death. This is what was going on. But in the midst of it, Peter has to remind them of something that he's having, that Paul's having to remind the Corinthians of and that we need to be reminded of today. That when you get your eyes off the Lord, and I don't care if you put them on the gifts or whatever, they had put them on the lions. When you get your eyes off the Lord and you put them on the lions or anything else, what happens with immediately, immediately, it affects your relationships to one another. I don't care how gifted you are. I, I don't care how much work you're doing for God. It doesn't matter. If you'll read 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to see this over and over again. We become a sound of a brass or, or we become nothing if we don't have this fruit that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. And when your focus is taken off of Christ, something disappears in your life and it's that love. It's what only God can produce. And even though you can still get up and perform and you can still go through the motions and try to make somebody think you're something that you're not, that fruit is missing, then all it is it means you and I are not genuine as being surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 22 of chapter 1, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Use the aorist tense. And he uses a word here that doesn't just mean cleanse from sin, but in the idea of consecration. You, you, you've made a choice. You have made a, a reform in your own life. You, you, you've done this, enabled by God's grace. He says, for a sincere love of the brethren. That word sincere means without any hypocrisy whatsoever. A pure love. Now that kind of love can only be produced by God himself. He says, so fervently love one another from the heart. Isn't it interesting that Peter has to remind a persecuted believer that he needs to love one another? What, what's happened? Well, like I said, they've taken their eyes off of the Lord and they put it on the lions. And suddenly their love for one another has sort of dissipated. Verse 23 says, for you've been born again. Do you not understand it? Not of seed which is perishable, but of seed which is imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. And then he compares flesh and spirit. And I think what he's doing here in the context of 1 Peter is beautiful. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Don't you love the springtime when grass comes up and turns green and the flowers are everywhere around you and you say, man, this is a beautiful time of the year. 
But then it gets to be about August. If it was like our last August, it actually started in June. Didn't it? And the heat begins to get hotter and hotter. The sun gets hotter and hotter. The, the heat begins to rise. And suddenly the grass does what? And Scripture tells you, it says the grass withers and the flower falls off. Now why would he put that there? To me, the only reason he would put it there in the context is you're under the heat of persecution. And under persecution and pressure, when circumstances crowd in on you, what it does, if anything of you is of the flesh, if it's just outward, it's not going to last. It's going to wither. And he uses a figurative sense here of showing how if we're living out of the flesh, it's not going to stand. It will, it will not withstand pressure. It will not withstand persecution. And then he says, but the word of the Lord abides forever. In other words, that which is produced out of the word of God, that which is caused by God himself, that's what lasts. That's what makes it. This is when the love can be there. This is the love that, that God gives that, that, that doesn't matter the circumstance around you. It's going to last. He says, and this is the word which was preached to you. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore. Now, you know, when you see a therefore, you always look to see what it's there for. <laughs> I just told you what it was there for. Now he tacks it on. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice. The word putting aside means to take it off like a garment. Get it off of you. Same word used in Ephesians 4 when he says, take off that old garment of lifestyle and put on the new garment. Same word used in Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Same word used in Hebrews 12. Casting off every encumbrance when you're running the race. And he says, therefore, putting aside all malice. Get it off of you. Let me tell you something. Malice is the main fabric of the flesh. Now, I want to show you what it is. If you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 through 8, you begin to get an idea of what malice is. The word is kakia. It's always associated with the flesh. Flesh. Corinthians ought to perk up if they were listening to this. Of course, these are all written at different times, but if they could have heard what Peter was saying, it would have related to Corinth because all they knew was malice. Kakia, flesh, wickedness. Verse 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. <laughs> I was reading this one time. My wife said, you look like a lump. Just as you are in fact unleavened, he says. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Then he says in verse 8, therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Isn't that interesting? He takes the word malice and associates it with leaven. Now, you know what leaven is. Every lady in here knows what leaven is. That's yeast. And you know when you cook and you take that one ingredient and you add it to a mixture of other ingredients, something's going to happen. It's going to rise up. It's going to cause something to rise up. Now, in a figurative sense, getting out of what it actually is, yeast, you put it into a spiritual sense, a figurative sense here, it's talking about the flesh in us that rises up when we choose not to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes like leaven. And something, it's not going to be inactive. It's going to be very active. And when I choose not to walk surrendered, it's going to rise up. Well, we see that it's an evil intention of the heart. Look over in Acts chapter 8, 21 and 22. This whole thing of malice is an evil intention of your heart. An evil meaning that which that which is against the th things that God wants. In other words, the, the, our hearts can so deceive us. In Acts 8, 21, he says this. 
And this is right when the man wanted to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he saw the apostles laying on of hands and he saw the things that took place as a result of that. And he said, whoa, can I purchase it? How much would it cost me to, to get this power? He'd been watching television, thought he could send his money in and get the power. And in verse 21, Peter replied to him, you have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Then in verse 22, therefore repent of this wickedness of you. The word wickedness is the word kakia. That's the word we're looking at. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. It's when my heart turns sour against God. It's when my heart says, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do, God. Now just forget it. Don't you call me. I'll call you. And I go my own way. And malice begins to rise up inside of me. And it's an evil intention of the heart. In Acts 14, verse 1 and 2, we see how it ruins relationships. It ruins relationships. I'll tell you what, if you want to find out why churches split, you want to find out why people bail out on Christianity, you want to find out why people like in Corinth did the things that they did, here it is right here. Acts 14, verse 1 and 2, and it's when Paul was on his first missionary journey. It says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved, and I guarantee you that's the root of it all, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And it's a root of that, it's a form of that same word. They embittered them against the brethren. You ever been around somebody that's embittered you against the brethren? Wonder what's been in their heart. Oh, but Wayne, I heard them teach the other day and they did such a great job. So, flesh is flesh, folks. And it only acts in one way. Well, in 1 Peter, or chapter 2, he says, therefore laying aside all malice. No wonder he says to do that because malice is not going to get us anywhere. Malice is flesh. But here in Verse 1 of chapter 2, he also shows us what the love of God is not by showing us what malice is. In other words, when you put off malice, there are certain things that go along with it and they're absolute in contrast with that sincere love that God has given us to where we might fervently love one another. And that love has got to be there. If that love is not there, there's something amiss. There's something amiss. Now let's look at it. There are four things that I want you to see this morning that, that I see in Scripture that tell me what God's love is not. It's like looking in a mirror. It's been a check, checkpoint for me for years. These have been checkpoints in my life. When I see the warning flags go up, listen to what I say, and sometimes when I'm in a confidence with somebody and I share something that I shouldn't have shared about somebody else, immediately God reminds me that was nothing but pure flesh, and I've got to deal with it. I've got to deal with it. All right, first of all, God's love has no intent in it to deceive anybody. God's love does not in any way have any intent in it to deceive anyone. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit. Now, have you noticed when you study the letters of Paul and of Peter, when they make a list, the first thing they mention usually is the key word. And the rest of the things they mention sort of come along to magnify that word. For instance, in, in Galatians 5, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the key word. But out of that love come all these other things, joy, peace, patience, all these things comes out of that love. It's simply magnifying what that love is. And here it's the same way with Peter. Malice is the key word. Malice is the key. Lay aside all that malice. 
but how do I know that malice is in my life? Well, the first way, he says, is by the deceit that's in our life. See, God's love, when it's there, automatically replaces the flesh. And the flesh is full of deceit, but God's love cannot in any way have any deceit in it. There's in no intent to deceive anybody about anything. The word for deceit here is the word dholos. And dholos is a word that's interesting. It means to defraud somebody, to deceive someone. It's the intent to, do, to, to say something that would seek to defraud or deceive somebody. It's found in verse 22 of chapter 2 when it speaks of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 22, Who committed no sin, speaking of Christ, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It seems to me, as I've studied the word, it seems to be more not so much what you do that's deceiving, although that's a part of it. It means it has more to do with what you say that intentionally deceives somebody. Of course, when the Lord Jesus opened his mouth, all, the, all that could come out was who he was, and that's truth. There could be no deceit in his mouth because there was no deceit in him, the perfect man, the God-man. But when it comes to you and me, a heart with the intent to deceive is always betrayed by the tongue. We've studied James, the third chapter, and we see immediately that the tongue is the indicator of the heart. He says a tongue's like a rudder of a ship, and it's going to turn it. A tongue can start a great fire. So it has to do with the intent of a heart, but it's, it's betrayed by the tongue. It's amazing to me how much deceit can be in believers who are so gifted and who are so talented and that use their gifts or their talents as a front to cover the deceit that's really in their lives. You say, Wayne, how do you know that? Because I've been that way many times in my life. I throw no stones this morning. I've been that way many times. I've, I've, I've preached sermons before that had nothing to do with what God was doing at that particular moment. You say, well, I didn't know the difference. Well, I did. It's a huge difference, folks. Just because somebody's gifted, just because somebody can do something does not in any way mean that it's God's hand upon that man. This is what Corinth needed to hear. The Greek word for deceit in the modern Greek is the word that has, has escalated to mean over the years, fish bait. <laughs> now you don't translate Greek out of modern Greek, I know that, but a word doesn't change that much. And you think of fish bait. What is fish bait? Guy goes down to the store and buys some deceit. <laughs> he goes down to buy some guile. What's that guile for? It's to deceive with intent a fish into thinking that that's free and good. The fish comes swimming down the stream. Man looks up and sees this big old T-bone worm hanging down in the water. Can't see the monofilament line that's hooking onto that. He says, man, this is my day. And swims up, grabs that side, then swallows it whole. <coughs> Takes off down the river. And in a few minutes, he wishes he'd have known something about that before, before he bit into it so fast. Because as soon as he gets down the river, he finds out underneath what looks so good the front was so good, was a hook. And when that man, unseen hands, janked that hook, then, then he realized that what he got was not what he thought he had. It's an amazing picture to me of what deceit is. <clears throat> How many people use that front of their gift or their abilities or whatever it is to cover up what they really are on the inside? But they come to church. See, this is something we have done in the 20th century. We've made church our spirituality. 
And when people come to church and they work at church and they do things at church, that must mean they're spiritual. Folks, that's nothing more to many people than just a front to a lifestyle of flesh that's underneath that. And you just can't buy it because it looks good on the outside. You've got to look deeper than that. What's on the inside? I've used this illustration many times over the years, but it's kind of fun to use it again. <laughs> Act like you hadn't heard it. When Stephanie was, was about uh, 12 years old, she said, Daddy, when are you going to let me date? <clears throat> That's a tough question for a father. I was thinking about maybe 85 if you lived that long. And I said, Stephanie, if you'll wait till you're 16 years old. You know, most people start dating when they're about three. But I said, if you'll wait till you're 16 years old, I'll let you date. But I want you to, first of all, develop your relationship with God through His Word and in Christ. And then, perhaps you'll know properly how to relate to others in your life. And she took me up on it. I couldn't believe it. She didn't date anybody. 16 years old. On her 16th birthday, many of you were, how many were here when I did this? If you remember way back, some of you were. And I got up in the pulpit that day and I said, uh, <laughs> I said, today is Stephanie's 16th birthday. We used to do birthdays around here until we got so big we couldn't do it anymore. And so we all were standing up and then all the kids were sitting over to my right and Stephanie's acting like she's embarrassed and loving every minute of it. <laughs> Stephen was never that way, but Stephanie was. She acted like she was embarrassed, but she loved it. And we sang happy birthday to her. And we finished. She didn't know I was going to do this. I had a baseball bat behind the old pulpit over in the other, other building. And I, I said, now... I pulled that baseball bat out, biggest thing I could find. I said, now all you boys, I've been watching some of you boys and you've been having eyes for my daughter and I want you to know I want to meet with you tonight after the evening service behind the, the building over here. We're going to talk about the ground rules of dating my daughter. So if you'll just meet with me, I'll discuss it with you. <laughs> hey, it worked for a whole year. Nobody called her up. One guy, one guy said, I would have, I want to go call you up. I'm afraid your daddy might be home. Meet me at the door. I'm not about to date you. But I said, Stephanie, there's going to come a night. Oh, there's going to come a night. I know it's coming. And the star's going to be out and the moon's out. And it's going to be in his eyes and in your eyes. And he's going to look at you and he's going to say, Stephanie, I love you. And I said, Stephanie, don't be stupid. You back up about 30 feet and you make that sorry rascal explain to you what he means by love. Because I said, Stephanie, he may be saying something that on the outside sounds so good, but on the inside, it has a hook. It's deceitful. He wants something from you. The deceit was the lifestyle of Corinth that we're talking about here. That's the way they lived. That was their lifestyle. Nothing but a fleshly-minded church. We know that from chapter 3. Refused to grow up. They were filled with guile. And by their, even, even by their pursuit of what they said were their greater gifts, if they could have tongues, if they could do the miracles, etc., by that very pursuit, it showed others, and it should show us, that that's nothing more than a front because you never find joy or identification in gifts. You find your joy and identification in Christ. You're seeking the wrong thing when you're seeking a gift and not seeking the giver. And it took the boldness of Paul to unmask all of that. It took the boldness of Paul to hit it face on and to show them what was underneath it all. That's why the 13th chapter is put where it is to show them that you, when you seek the giver, he produces something in you that is far beyond anything else that you can, you can want. And it's a fruit is called love. And it's not only his love in you and through you, but it's, it's, it's that love reaching out and touching others. When we pursue the giver, there's no place for guile 
There's no intent to deceive. We are what we are before people. And they know that. They can look at you and see right through you. There's no ulterior motive. Secondly, God's love does not allow us to pretend to be what we're not. Now, it's, it's interesting how these two words are closely connected. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, then he connects in hypocrisy. Now, the word uh, guile or deceit seems to me to be the intent. The word hypocrisy seems to be that which you do to deceive somebody. It's the pretense. It's the front that you put up. The word is hypocrisis. Epo means under, krisis means to judge, to judge under. In the secular Greek, the word was used on the, as a stage word when people would perform, pretend. They'd get up on the stage and pretend to be somebody they weren't. However, they didn't wear makeup like you see the actors today. They would wear a mask, and it means to judge under, as if a person's got a mask on and you never see him under without that mask. And so you're judging him as one being under a mask. And they would have a mask on. It would either smile or it would frown and Whatever you saw in the mask was what they wanted you to see. It was not necessarily what was on the other side of that mask. And that's what the word was. Either they were smiling or frowning or joy or sorrow. Well, it's interesting to me, again, how these two words are so closely connected together. The mask is, that is worn in a, in, a, in a figurative sense in the spiritual life is perhaps covering the reality that is hidden, you see. There's a deceitful thing going on here. You take Corinth, for instance. If we did not have anything but a few verses, we'd think this was a great spiritual church. Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 2, he calls them the church of God in Corinth. Well, that's a great title, the church of God in Corinth. In, in, in verse uh, 2 also, he says to those who have been sanctified, you're in a class all by yourself. God has set you apart unto himself. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, in everything they were enriched in him. They didn't lack in anything. Verse 7 says they lacked in no gift. In verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, they had knowledge of the message of grace. They had it all. They didn't need any more of the message of grace. They understood it. And on and on and on. But you see, that was the front. Paul begins to uncover what they were really like. Underneath their position in Christ and what God had given them was the reality of what they were. In chapter 5, they would not deal with the heinous sin of immorality in the church when a man's sleeping with his father's wife and they wouldn't even deal with it. They just let it go on and on and on and on. Nobody even dealt with it. In chapter 6, they were not willing to settle their own differences under the blood of Christ. Rather, they would drag one another into a pagan court. This is the kind of people that they were. In chapter 7, they had completely distorted God's idea of marriage. In chapter 8 through 10, they had become so arrogant with the knowledge that they did have that they just trampled all over the weaker brother and the ones who couldn't quite grasp it. And they just, they just walked right over them. In chapter 11, they made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. The rich people would look down on the poor people. They would bring the food and they would be drunk and the poor people would be, be, be hungry. And, and he said, this is, you in no way are coming to honor the Lord in this supper. And then in chapter 12, they'd become so ignorant of spiritual matters that they actually began to exalt gifts rather than to exalt the giver. Now, that's what was going on underneath it. The front that's put up, the intent to deceive by what we say and perhaps by what we do, but the front being the hypocrisy, the mask that is worn. Paul nails them in chapter 13 and shows them that if this fruit is not there, then, then all this that you say about yourself is just a front. Oh, how we pretend. Oh, how we pretend. Some of the most difficult experiences of my ministry out and about 
has been to be around people that have been noted to be great spiritual people, gifted people. I've heard them preach and I thought to myself, I need to go drive a truck. I couldn't begin to preach like they preach. And then to walk up to them and they won't give you time of day. If you're not somebody, they don't have time for you. They don't have time to sit down and talk to you. And boy, it just killed me on the inside. I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. I just heard them, and they were absolutely fantastic, but there's something, there's something missing here. God was just simply saying, oh, that's a front. You can go and take a Dale Carnegie course and learn how to speak, but only God can produce the fruit of his spirit in your life. And that has got to wrap everything that you do. And if it's not there, then everything else is a sham. That's what he's going to tell us again, 1 Corinthians 13. You want to know if you're spiritual or not? Then ask yourself, is there any front that you're putting up to make people think you're something that you're not? Is there? Well, I remember a night on a Wednesday night at Woodland Park years ago when God moved in a very special way, long story behind it. We went to prayer because we knew that there was discontent in the body. There was division. We said, we're going to pray until we get that unity back in here because the unity is already there in the Spirit of God and we're going to protect it. We're going to preserve it tonight in the bonds of peace. We just got on our knees. And I remember I began to wait for somebody to start praying. It scared me to death because I thought I've done the wrong thing. These people don't understand what I'm doing. One, one man stood up and said, oh God, one is typical. <laughs> I'm sorry. Bless the missionaries, let it rain somewhere in the world. I mean, that's... That just blows me away. Oh, God, forgive us wherein we've sinned. Oh, come on, you know where you've sinned. But then a man got up and he screamed out. He said, oh, God, it was in the old building over here. Hair on the back of my head rose up when he did that. And I remember what he said, the very words. He said, oh, God, crying. He said, oh, God, and only God can, can bring this kind of conviction. He said, oh, God, I'm not the man people here think I am. I'm not the father and the husband my wife thinks I am. He began to confess the gross ugliness that everything else had been hiding for so long. And he got real. He got real. And then God could do a work in his life. God's love does not allow pretense or deceit. You see, we, we can pride ourselves in what we do for somebody. We can pride ourselves in our abilities and our gifts. We can pride ourselves in it. But if God's spirit is not dominating our life, then that love is not there. It's not there. It's not there. And that's what's killing the message of the church in the 20th century. That's what was killing the message of Corinth in a city where they should have influenced them, but the city was influencing them. Thirdly, God's love will not allow us to envy what others have. It will not allow us to envy what others have. We've just seen in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians how they were envying the greater gifts. The verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 really speaks to their own flesh-mindedness there. Therefore, putting aside all malice, and then he says, and all deceit and hypocrisy, and then he says, and envy. Envy is a funny little word. In the Greek, it's very difficult to pronounce. Phthonos. <laughs> it's almost like you're going to spit or something. Phthonos. It's a pain felt when happiness is, in others is perceived. The pain you feel when you perceive somebody else is happy. I, I have another way of saying it. It's the, it's the funny feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when something good happens to somebody you know. <laughs> now, I looked up Kittles and Dr. Zodiac. I looked them all up, but that's my definition. 
I've told this story before, but when I was associate pastor, I used to be on a church staff. The preacher was making so much more money than I was making, I couldn't even count it. It was so high. And they gave him a car every year and gave him his gas. Funny how tables turn sometime, isn't it? He used to drive that brand new car. He's five years younger than I was, and I played ball with him in college, and I knew him. I worked just as hard as he did. I called him the dump truck. He dumped everything on me. So he'd drive that brand new car about every November up in my driveway. Just drive that shiny car up in front of my driveway. And I'd walk out and I would say, oh man, it's a beautiful car. But I was thinking, I want to spit on your car. That's envy. That's envy. You can imagine how the Corinthian believers must have felt when somebody stood up and began to speak in an unknown tongue. They never heard this before. And the ecstatic moment and the emotional moment, how that, because of their pagan background, perhaps made them think, oh man, I can't do that. I wish I could do that. And they begin to envy the gift. You know why somebody would envy a gift? Because they're not finding what they already have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You never find joy in a gift. I'm going to say it again. You find it in the giver. And if you found it in the giver, it doesn't matter what somebody else's gift is. It doesn't matter what somebody else's ministry is. You can rejoice, as Romans 12, 15 says, when they rejoice, because you're already rejoicing in the Lord. Envy comes as a result of flesh that's not being crucified daily so that the true joy can come from the Lord and only the Lord. We're always envious of what others have or what they do when we're not being fulfilled in the Lord ourselves. God's love will not allow us to deceive others by pretending, by wearing masks, envying what others have, and not living in the resources that God gives. The love comes as a result of the intimacy of a relationship. And I'll tell you what, there have been so many times in my life, I wish I could, I could document them for you, that that love disappeared in me. But when that love disappears in me, it's going to affect you, and it's going to affect my family. And I've gone through seasons of my life when I didn't have that love. I tried to get it in preaching, and I tried to get it this way and this way, and finally God had to bring me back every time. Wayne, what in the world are you doing, son? You can't put up a pretense. You can't experience this love until you bow before me. But when you bow, it's yours. It's yours. And you're satisfied. Not in a church, not in a ministry, not in a gift. You're satisfied in the one who produces the love in your heart. And fourthly, God's love will not allow us to slander one another. He won't allow it. When you're living surrendered to Christ, oh, you hear somebody say, man, that guy is really gifted, isn't he? And somebody says, yeah, but let me tell you what I heard about him. Yeah, but. What, I got a t-shirt. The denomination of the yeah, buts. I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> Mess up here. But the denomination of the yeah, buts. I hear that so often. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. The word slander is a word that comes from two Greek words, katalalia. To speak against, it means to speak and against. It's real hard to understand. To defame somebody, to cause another to think evil of someone. A lady asked me one day, she said, how do I know when I'm speaking against someone? I didn't know what to say to her. And I said, I don't know, maybe you're not speaking for them. <laughs> she said, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. 
Years ago, Stephen, my son, was standing out in the foyer of the old building, years and years and years ago, getting a drink of water. And he came in that night after we went, to, went home from church. He said, Daddy, is such and such your friend? I said, oh, yes, he's my dear friend. He said, well, Daddy, and he got big tears in his eyes. He said, if he's your friend, why did he say about you what I heard him say at the water fountain a little while ago in the foyer? You ever had that happen to you? Doesn't it bless you? Yeah. Man, can we ever deceive others? We can put our mask on and make them think we're spiritual. Oh, look at my gift. Look at who I am. And all we're doing is hiding behind the front of religious goodness. And if that fruit is not in us, if that love is not there, then that renders us totally useless in the kingdom of God. I preached this message, not this message, but on this passage in Romania during communism times when Ceausescu was in power. Largest church in Europe. There was about 3,000 inside and 2,500 outside listening on the microphone, on the speakerphones. And when I finished, the pastor walked up to the pulpit and laid down over it and began to break and weep. And I finally found out what he said because he's speaking in Romanian, but Costell finally told me. And he said, this is the message we must hear in this place. Persecuted believers who were religious without a relationship and no love in their hearts. A man from Bulgaria told me, you see, flesh is flesh wherever you go, it doesn't matter. I remember standing up in, in Romania one time, I said, you know the first thing that impressed me about you people when I got over here, and they all kind of beamed, I said, your flesh is just as rotten as mine. <laughs> and they stood up and clapped. They said, thank you for being honest with us. Everybody else comes over here and tries to put a Band-Aid over things that we need to deal with. A man from Bulgaria told me, he said, the sin of our people, now listen to me, is the pride of their persecution. That's the sin of our people. We think we're better than you because we've been persecuted and you haven't. Flesh is flesh. All the fronts that people put up. Only when we are surrendered, attached to Christ, will there be a love produced in and through us that cannot be duplicated, cannot be faked. This is what God's love is not. It will not allow us to intentionally deceive others. It will not allow us to pretend by putting up a front of spirituality. We will be transparent. We know what we're not. Have you ever been <laughs> caught? You know, the person that catches me more in my fleshly ways with my wife, and I told her I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. If there's ever a vacancy in the Trinity, she'd fit real well. I, she always catches me. I mean, she nails me. And, and, the, and the first thing I try to do, what's the first thing you do when you're caught? You know you're caught. Try to be deceptive and lie your way out of it. It's what you do. You say, we don't do that, Brother Wayne. Are you that bad? <laughs> Shoot. If you knew all the things I'd struggle with, you wouldn't be here. But if I knew all was going on in here, I wouldn't bother walking over here this morning either. Boy, we just ought to get ground level. Just ground level. It will not allow us to envy others. It causes us to bask in the joy of Christ in us. It will not allow us to speak evil of one another. And I want to close with these thoughts. It looks like a duck. Quacks like a duck. Acts like a duck. I think it's a duck. He loves like Christ. That love makes him even look like Christ. 
And this love causes him to act like Christ. I think he's a Christian. Boy, the fronts that we put up. Gifts, you think they're important? You just wait till we finish chapter 13. And you're going to take that subject of gifts and you're going to put it in your back pocket and say, huh, I'm not pursuing that anymore. Because it's the love that's the key. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.